0: What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey.
1: Welcome to Dropping In, everybody. It's a time when concerns about the pandemic around the world make it clear just how linked we really are. Travel is impacted, summer vacations are off. And so, since we may not be able to experience one another firsthand, if you were to describe America to a person from a foreign country, what would you say? Would you talk about our government or the small towns with friendly faces, big cities with chic people, ethnic restaurants and food carts, or the natural beauty, the deserts and arviers, mountains and hikers, lakes and canoers, rivers and fishermen all across this country. Stories of people's lives or the monuments they create. Here to talk about it and her new book, When the Red Gates Opened, published by she Writes Press, is Dory Jones-Young. It's about living in Hong Kong and China during the 1980s, and Dory's website tagline gives us a clue. It reads, Connecting Generations and Cultures Through the Lives of Ordinary People. Welcome, Dory.
2: Well, thank you very much. What a delight to talk to you today.
1: It's lovely to have you and congratulations on this wonderful multi-layered book. It's, um, you know, uh, when the red gates opened, it's called a memoir, but I wondered how you might describe it. Is it historical, documentary, memoir, both, all of the above? How would you describe your book?
2: Well, I call it a historical memoir because I did very consciously try to weave together two big threads. One is my personal experience as a foreign correspondent, a young woman on her own in, in Hong Kong, halfway around the world, and what it was like for me personally, but also what was going on in China, because it turns out that was, uh, the 80s were a really pivotal time in Chinese history. And I was a journalist with a front row seat. So uh, all throughout, in the way that sort of historical fiction does, I use that as a model, although this is a memoir, because if you get really, as a reader, very involved in someone's life, an individual's life, even if whether it's fictional or real, then sometimes you end up learning about a place that's far away or perhaps long ago that you, at the end, you think, whoa, that was really interesting, but you might not have read a book about that particular topic.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you have an inside-out approach. You have woven together successfully, as you say, the personal and the professional and even the political and the dramas that in, incurred were occurred in China during the 1980s um and you know i'm going to give our listeners a bit of a formal bio so this 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 period just is so fascinating it's almost hard to you know get it out in one volume let alone one conversation but we're going to give it a try um here's the here's the official uh, bio for Dory, is an award-winning journalist author and speaker Dori jones Young worked for eight years in the 1980s as Hong Kong Bureau Chief for Business Week, covering China during its pivotal years. Educated in history at Princeton and in international relations at Johns Hopkins University, she has written eight books, including her memoirs, memoir of the years in China, a best-selling business book about Starbucks, two historical novels, and two award-winning novels about Chinese children in America. From her current base near Seattle, she also worked as the West Coast Technology Correspondent for U.S. News and World Report. Fluent in Mandarin Chinese, Dory has traveled throughout China over 40 years and has spoken about her books across the United States. So, Dory, I, I, I don't find it coincidental somehow that you wrote a book about Howard Schultz, founder of Starbucks, because in throughout the world, one of the best places to get to know a place is to go to the coffee shop. Um, there you see ordinary people. Um, and I think that that's somehow uh, metaphorical in your approach. Um, Pour Your Heart Into It One Cup at a Time is the title of your biography. Do you consider yourself an ordinary person with all of the exceptional experiences you've had?
2: I do think of myself as an ordinary person. I guess we all do, really. Um, And what I really tried to do while I was in China was get to know people on the streets or just, just relatives, just people that you wouldn't normally interview as a journalist and uh, in in the Howard Schultz book he talks about the coffee shop as a third place away from home, away from work where where people can gather and um, I really love that whole concept
1: me too um, it isn't uh, we, we, we're not going to quite overlook the fact that Doria Jones young um, you married a Chinese. Paul Young, and I think that might have been a a further lens into the world, but one that frankly you'd already established with your, I think, very uh, down to earth person in the street approach to referring to yourself as an ordinary person, albeit with extraordinary talents, uh, and and viewing the world from a street level, from a human level. Talk to us about the labels that attach to countries when we hear news and make generalizations about places and people we don't know.
2: Well, I think that that's a a great question, particularly about the U.S. and China right now, because uh, U.S.-China relations are at a a low point once again. And I really strongly believe that people-to-people contact is the best way to get to understand another country. And that's kind of what I was trying to do as a reporter at the street level, talking to ordinary people. And it's really unfortunate that, um, among many other unfortunate things about this pandemic, that we haven't been able to travel, as you say, to other countries, even other parts of our own country. And um, Chinese people who were studying in the U.S., many of them had to go back There certainly have been no tourists from China. There have been no American tourists going to China. So I personally have felt it that I have not been able to get back to China and see some of my husband's relatives or people, friends that I met there. And the same thing that Chinese people have not been able to come here. And I really think that at a very deep level, the relationship between countries has to start with the relationship between individuals. And when we cut that off, and then start saying really negative, or at least hearing our leaders say really negative things about another country, it's too easy to make a generalization that China is this or China is that, when really what you're talking about is Chinese leaders and the decisions that they've made, and not 1.4 billion people who are individuals like you and me. And uh, I, I, it, that's one thing that that has been a side effect of this pandemic that I think is potentially very destructive.
1: It's interesting that you talk about the disconnect that happens with lack of travel and that contact and the ability for us to have direct observation and the sense of other people. I I also think that we're at an inflection point with China because of the former president's posture uh, vis-a-vis the pandemic and actually casting blame. Uh, and I don't think we can avoid that as a kind of um, elephant in the room here, that there is an all-time attitudinal low because of the fact that um, the former president created a conspiracy theory that China basically um, you know, contrived or conspired to uh, originate or propagate the COVID nineteen. I mean, even to hear my own words say it, it just sounds absurd. <laughs> but it happened. Yeah, it's definitely. It's mm-hmm. happened, and and it's happened, and we need to acknowledge it. The offshoot of this is is the hate crimes that have now arisen in this country. Just a quick um, April twenty eighth filing from uh, a writer Kimi Yam research released that shows in the first quarter of 2021 to the same period in 2020, across 15 major US cities, hate crimes have surged by 169%, continuing the historic increase in attacks um, of uh, last year. Just, I mean, I I know that, (laughs) You kind of coincidentally, I mean, talk about timing. You coincidentally released a book during the time when this inflection point was happening. But maybe, Dory, it's a healing mechanism. Address, please, some of the points here that we're talking about the misinformation that we're suffering from.
2: I would really hope that my book could be a, a healing mechanism and my my voice as well, and that I think it's important to speak up uh, during this time. The um, Gallup poll has been following u s attitudes towards China for uh, a long time, and they are at uh, the the approval rating for china or disapproval rating china uh, that right now about seventy nine percent of Americans have a negative view of China, and that's the highest it's been, uh, even after the Tiananmen Square crisis and crackdown, uh, which seemed to be a, a total low point. Um, there's even a, even more negative views about China now. And I agree with you that one of the important factors in that was the former president's, um, very combative and ugly, um, Characterization of China, uh, China, he used to say, and, um, and talking about that conspiracy theory as well, uh, among many others. And I do think that that directly had an effect on these hate crimes. Asian Americans of all, from all different origins, whether they're from China or not, um, have been targets in part because of the, the hate stirred up against Asians in general. Which had not been the case for quite a long time, and historically, there have been times. Uh, but uh, my husband's been in this country for sixty years, and he's never seen anything like this. He's always felt very welcomed and had opportunities here, and uh, this has been uh, just just hearing about uh, hearing about the cases on the news, and also some some immediate friends who have not been assaulted, but have been. A, a people come up to them, strangers come up to them in stores and say, go back to your country. And mm-hmm. one of his friends had been in this country for 60 years. And someone said, a young person said that <laughs> he was probably born after he arrived here. And those, those attitudes are just uh, really frightening to me. And as a, as a wife of a Chinese man and we have a Chinese American daughter. So my, my family looks Chinese and, um, even the Chinese Americans who have been in this country for many generations, um, people will look at their face and, and make an assumption that they've just arrived from China and that they're somehow connected with, at least especially in the beginning part of the COVID crisis, there were people who, who, thought, who avoided Chinese and Chinese restaurants because they thought that COVID-19 was a Chinese disease. Um, the irony is that China controlled it far better uh, than mm-hmm. the U.S. did but um these these attitudes have been have been really scary
1: they're devastating and i think in your mm-hmm. book um you do a wonderful job of revolving around to see the perspective of how the motivation to permeate promulgate these kinds of um this kind of hatred might have come about and i think you know you you address that um First of all, the contrast of how China has contained the virus and second of all, how the former administration bungled the attempt at containing containing the pandemic, basically by dismissing it as a non-issue. Um, and I think that there are further antecedents described in your book that I thought were very important undercurrents. You talk about even um, competition and the threat of another country's economy, the growth of China and the astounding uh, growth when we once dismissed them as the manufacturer, uh, the source of cheap goods that no one would buy, when in fact, now, you know, we are uh, totally interrelated with the Chinese economy. I wonder about you know, the flow, the ebb and flow of business as a kind of great equalizer because it certainly doesn't look at these kinds of attitudes when formulating uh, positions to take in terms of uh, exchange, trade, um, and dependencies on uh, production of goods. How how has this been for you? Because you straddled the business the business writing world. Did you see it? Right, as a exactly. A, I
2: had my because I worked for Business Week. I really saw China through a business lens when I was a reporter there, and it's it's uh, it's, it's been <laughs> it was very interesting writing this memoir over the last five years because five years ago uh Americans were were fairly neutral about China some were positive some were negative and uh and then as I was writing the novel these uh opinions got more and more negative and I I didn't expect the book would come out <laughs> at a time like this and the business in China uh, traditionally was uh, American business in China was was especially during the 80s was very excited about the possibility of China opening up and that was a big part of what I covered as a reporter is American companies that were all kind of scrambling to get into China. And once they got there, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> There's some rather amusing stories about, about them uh, getting there. And, and, uh, and China really wasn't ready to modernize in the 80s, but they, they just went ahead and did it anyway. So business was kind of a cheerleader for U.S. business was a cheerleader for China for, for decades. And then in the last um, five, five years or so, um, the American business as well became fairly negative and started talking about unfair trade practices and, and uh, theft of intellectual property and things like that, and which also contributed to the negative opinions of China. And One of the things that I, an insight that I got from it is when, when I was there and also for many years, the U.S looked at China as sort of a younger brother. Um, they were poor, they were, it's, it's hard, I can't exaggerate how poor they were in the 80s when I first went there. And that's in my lifetime. And in the lifetime, a lot of people, it was a very, very poor country. And it is very prosperous now, not as prosperous as the US, but very prosperous. And um, at that time, and for many years, we just assumed that China would be like other Asian countries that they would produce, as you say, goods that nobody really wanted, uh, cheap labor things, and that 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 had worked for American business who were producing cheap labor things in initially in Japan and later in Korea and later in Taiwan. Well, now in China, um, those were tended initially tended to be jobs that Americans didn't particularly want to do, but then as China developed and and sort of went up the technology ladder, and and, and they started with cheap toys and Christmas ornaments and, and clothing, and, and then they kind of started producing more and more sophisticated things, and as they did, they started to compete with companies that were producing in the U.S. Furniture was one of the earliest ones um, mm-hmm. that we still had a viable furniture uh, manufacturing business in North Carolina and elsewhere back, you know, just 10, 20 years ago. And mm-hmm. um, China was started, started producing more sophisticated things, and now they're producing high-tech things as well. They're producing, most of our iPhones are made in China, and they aren't just a contract manufacturer anymore, and they don't even have cheap labor anymore. The mm-hmm. uh, labor, as the standard of living has gone up, labor's gotten more expensive. So... Yeah. we can't think of China as a younger brother anymore it can't u uh, s china relations just cannot go back to where they were ten years ago or twenty years ago because they're much more of an equal they're not our equal yet in technology but they're trying really hard and they're putting a lot of money into educating their young people in science and technology and engineering and they're they're trying to innovate and get patents on various uh, high-tech areas, and they're, they're targeting some of the highest-tech areas. So now they really are a strategic competitor, and that's just not what you know, we thought of back in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s. They're not a younger brother anymore. So as anybody who's ever had a younger brother who then kind of grew as tall as they did or maybe taller you have to change your relationship uh, over when, when the younger brother grows up, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's really, underneath it all, that's what's happening here. And we're not really quite sure how to do that, because when we were competing with the Soviet Union, they never really developed their economy very well. They, their living standards never got very high. But China is actually pursuing a very different path, and they... They are raising living standards, and they are innovating, and we have to figure out how. And we haven't; the U.S. hasn't had an equal on the world stage for a long time. And I don't know when was the last time we had an equal. Certainly, Soviet Union well, was our maybe our equal in, in in military matters, but not in economic matters.
1: Well, so that's we're just, just it. we not used to it, right? Mm-hmm. And Dury, um, we have to pause for a break here, but I think sure. point, the point that you're making um, is a brilliant one. Uh, China has defied all expectations and we were entirely unprepared for it or any equal to the United States because we have always regarded ourselves as paramount. As Howard Schultz said, it's all good when you're young and scrappy, but not when you're big and uh, Bigfoot <laughs> and therefore become a threat. Mm-hmm. Um when mm-hmm. we come back we're going to continue talking about how binary assumptions are poisonous and toxic to foreign relations with China and how we're going to have to cooperate ultimately on things like climate change don't go away we'll be right back on dropping in
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com stimulating talk
1: gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast
0: all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show Send us an email to diane at diane That's diane at diane now, back to dropping in.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dory Jones Young, author of When the Red Gates Opened. And it's a multi tiered historical memoir about China and your time in Hong Kong, Dory. When you really experienced firsthand a lot of the news stories that we were only reading about, um, there was a, a A perspective, obviously, from the Chinese point of view that we didn't know about was that somehow also the United States um, had succeeded in humiliating China at a certain point. And I think it's crucial that we break down some of these stereotypes, um, which is what happens in your book when the red gates opened. Talk to us a little bit about the Chinese experience of the U.S.,
2: Well, it's interesting. The Chinese experience of the U.S. and of the West in general, I knew about at a kind of a abstract level. There's one scene in the book where my husband takes me to see a movie about the start of the Opium War, which seems like just a random historical event to us, right? But it was a time when uh, British troops attacked China, and it was a, a searing experience for the Chinese because the British were trying to force them to take to import opium when opium was actually illegal in china and I was in a uh, in a movie theater in in Hong Kong with my husband. I was the only white person there everyone else was chinese and I was actually kind of looking around a little bit scared because. Uh, the white people in the movie were, were the bad guys. And that's just not the way our movies (laughs) work. And so it really opened my eyes to listen and look for the Chinese perspective on world events. And one big thing I've learned about the Chinese perspective from then and, and more recently as well, is that they really value stability and, um, when at the, One of the big stories I covered was the negotiations about the future of Hong Kong. When I arrived in Hong Kong, it was a British colony, and uh, but very shortly after I got there, the British Prime Minister went to China to start the talks about the future of China of Hong Kong after 1997. And what really struck me was that the, one of the—well, Deng Xiaoping, the leader of China, promised uh, Hong Kong stability and prosperity, and— I thought, I've thought about that for years since then. So he didn't promise freedom and democracy. Mm-hmm. He promised stability and prosperity. And stability, we in the U.S. don't think about stability. Although we've had some instability recently, it's nothing compared to what China has had over the last, particularly over the last hundred years, or 200 years really. And a lot of um, older Chinese remember times of extreme instability, both before and after the communists took over. And instability is a scary thing for Chinese because the country actually fell apart completely in the 1920s. There was no functioning central government. So to them, having a strong government is really important because Mm -hmm. when they had a weak government throughout history... They had instability and they had warfare, they had civil war, they had drought, they had famine, people were, didn't have enough to eat and their sons were being taken away to fight these, these endless wars and they, they, they hated those periods of weak government. So they have a, a view of government that a strong government is really necessary for stability and we in the U.S. don't really, we don't have to think about stability because of our history we, we, other than the Civil War, which none of us remember, we've never had a terrible period of instability. We've ne- certainly never had foreign countries occupy us.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So those kinds of things are value, Different values lead to different governments, and uh, because they value stability and strong government, that's why they have it now. And they are actually prospering under it. And that Chinese people—it's easy for us to say, "Oh, they don't have the same kinds of human rights as we do." They certainly don't have. They don't have one man, one vote. But um, they do have stability and prosperity. And from a Chinese point of view, that's rare in history, and that's something to be valued and not to be overlooked. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I learned along the way about. Trying to step out of my, my personal American perspective, which is based on what I've learned and, and the history of my own country, and try to step into their perspective, how they view things, and stability is really an important thing for them.
1: It's so interesting to me too that you know you really had I mean excuse the expression a really white bread kind of upbringing. You you were in a very <laughs> That's true. You know, a very, right? And 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 a very and then you yeah. had a Prince, Princeton education, Johns Hopkins, doesn't get any better than that. And I think that, you know, for you to uh first of all be drawn to China fascinates me. I think that somehow um, your your identity as both a kind of common man identity and a kind of an uh, unassuming, unaggressive kind of you know, personality, you describe yourself in the book as an introvert. It was difficult for you as a journalist to dial the number to get the interviews going and to make the calls. Um, And I I think to myself, you know, there's something, um, there's some kind of corollary there too where someone with your education um, still comes across with humility and dignity. Um, I think there might be, you know, an affinity there I wonder if you felt the same thing upon arrival uh, in Hong Kong.
2: In terms of the, the affinity between my personality and the, and the Chinese one?
1: Yeah. One and the, thing and the,
2: I, I did notice with Chinese in general, now anytime you generalize <laughs> you you have to worry about stereotypes. So not every Chinese person is the same. Not every American person is the same. But it is generally true that... Um, Barging in and demanding things doesn't work very well in China. And sometimes it does work well in the U.S., frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the most successful tech entrepreneurs, look at Elon Musk um, or, or Jeff Bezos, have been the barge in and try something new and don't listen to other people and so chaos kind of leaders. And those, that approach is not... Uh, very accepted or approved of in China. So the fact that I I was unassuming and unaggressive initially, I thought this was right after Watergate, where everyone in journalism just admired um, the uh, the reporters who, who who opened up that the Watergate story, and aggressive reporting was considered a very good thing. And I was not just by nature, I'm not very aggressive. And I I thought that was a real weakness on my part. It was embarrassing to say I was a reporter, but I just wasn't terribly aggressive. But actually in China, that was a good thing. Uh, so to approach people with humility, like, I don't understand this, will you explain it to me? Uh, even if I did understand it pretty well, and and giving them their dignity and not trying to push my way in, really helped me. I didn't realize that until decades later, looking back. That's one of the things about memoir, as you know. When you when you write it, you look back and you reflect on, on who you were and why things happened the way they did. And that's one of the things I learned from writing the memoir, is that having that sort of unaggressive, unassuming approach um, helped me to really get people in China to, to trust me and to open up and to talk to me. Whereas if I'd gone barging in, they wouldn't have.
1: And how many cover stories did you have for Business Week? I'm just going to try to put this in perspective. So it's the cover <laughs> of Business Week magazine, which was, you know, is an in, you know, in tactile magazine. How many cover stories for Dory jones Young? <laughs> or how many well, for when um, you were writing under Dory Jones because you i the, was
2: yeah I was yeah. Jones at first and was young only after I married my husband Paul, but i was um so as you point out for for a newspaper writer, the big deal is to get on the front page. For a magazine writer, the big deal is to get a cover, a story that's so big that it's featured on the cover. And it, it took a while before I, I was good enough or had had it, had the right kind of story to do that. But I I, ha- I was in Hong Kong about eight years, and I would say I had about eight cover stories every time I did I would I would blow up the image and put it on my wall so it was delightful at the end I had all these blown up uh, images of of cover stories that I did and Mm -hmm. um, that was when when there was a really big story and actually I was very lucky because the 80s were a time of big news in China things were changing before I before the 80s uh China was still under Maoism, which was a kind of crazy uh, version of communism that really was very destructive and involved a lot of persecution and poverty. And in the 80s, China w- just opened up amazingly, and they allowed in capitalism. It's very hard for us now to look back and realize how, how, ama- how incredible that was because there had never been a communist Party that allowed capitalism, and China did that in the 80s, and it was just mind-boggling. I remember the first time I read that they were going to do a stock market. I thought, There's nothing more capitalist than a stock market, and yet China did that, and they still have one. We just norm, we just don't even think about it today. But a communist country with a stock market, it's just it's it's mind-boggling, and they have they have billionaires now, uh, yes. which is not your idea. That's not what Marx had in mind, right? Exactly. It was, it was just, uh, there were so many, there was so much news at that time. That's why I was able to do quite a few cover stories, which is very exciting for me.
1: Very much so. Um, when you were running out of wall space and um, had these <laughs> you know, covers blown up, um, I also think your your timing of the release of this memoir, when the red gates open, might be a bit incandescent as well, because what timing i mean the chinese the consciousness of china um is and and these threads that you bring together the the political and economic threads ha, the interplay and how some of those forces rise to the fore while the others are diminishing or still there and rear their ugly head as in 1989 with the massacre in Tiananmen square and that that was the the capitulating moment um for you understandably when you know i think the world was was traumatized by this i want to be a uh, play devil's advocate for a moment here and go back to the idea of green economy which is going to be a market force throughout the world as we move on because climate change and working against it is going to impact all of us there is evidence that the animal trade in china owing to the destruction of habitat Um, which occurs the world over because we overbuild, because there's too many of us and the cities, you know, deplete resources. Um, You know, this uh, pandemic, COVID-19, it did originate with animal trade in sick animals that had become sick because of their loss of habitat. Other pandemics, Ebola, originated in Africa, but the bottom line is we need to cooperate here in this more transcendent cause of of fighting climate change. You talked in the book about even witnessing charcoal burning stoves in homes, and granted, this is going back now to the eighties. I wondered if you felt that um, you know, first of all, our, our stereotypes of China blocking us from being able to reach out and do the necessary work that we're all going to need to do together? And how much is China going to be a willing partner in in the green effort, do you think?
2: Well, the the green effort is actually one of the few areas where China and the U.S. under current leadership um, are both uh, committed to... uh, to responding to climate change um and lowering greenhouse gas emissions uh but both of us are are together we are the two biggest uh emitters of of uh, carbon and um in China's case they they have developed a lot of um uh, solar panels and wind they 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 and, and also electric cars they've really invested in those And in some ways, they're ahead of us. So we're importing solar panels from them, which is actually something we could be producing ourselves. So they, at some level, China's really committed and obviously pushing ahead. But at another level, they they don't have any oil at all. So they have, but they have a lot of coal. So they're actually continuing to build coal plants. Not that I think a lot of people don't know, but that's a really, that's the worst kind of pollution that you can have in terms of the effect on the climate. And so they really, we really need to both cooperate where we're both of us, both the U.S. and China, uh, very deliberately try to wean ourselves off of, of fossil fuels. And when you are you were mentioning the, the animal trade and the loss of habitat, I will also say on that one... Um, one of the problems is that uh, Chinese people like to eat exotic animals. <laughs> they they finally uh, passed a law saying that they couldn't sell exotic animals. It's Ill- now illegal to sell exotic animals in in markets. But they uh, there's been not a lot of Chinese, but a small percentage of Chinese who really like that. And that has been a problem as well. So they they really I think with this pandemic they really learned their lesson on that that they they have to crack down on that and tell people that they they can't do that anymore. But both mm-hmm. the U.S. and China are going to well together. We emit about fifteen percent of the of the carbon in, in the air, and um, so the rest of the world also needs to take action. Every country needs to take action, but it right. is one thing where. Uh, Both Biden and the Chinese president are at least, uh, at least they say the right things. They're committed to trying to improve the situation. So that's one sort of bright light in in what otherwise is not a very good U.S.-China relationship.
1: Well, thank you for throwing the window open on that. Uh, we're talking with Dory Jones Young, author of *When the Red Gates Opened*. It couldn't be more fascinating, Dory, and uh, insightful that you know some of the things that I'm not sure we're entirely aware of because of the labels that we attach to over almost almost 1.4 billion Chinese. And the way in which we're going to have to open our minds and um, maybe combat xenophobia, maybe combat age-old, decades-old prejudices that come from the Cold War about communism, lots and lots of stereotypes that you break down, I think, in this really magnificent memoir, When the Red Gates Opened. We're going to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, we'll continue with Dory Jones Young on her very wonderful love story with a real man and a real country. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In.
2: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey,
1: Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency
0: podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit BooksForward.com or send us an email at info at BooksForward.com. A JKS communications company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at diane com. That's diane at diane Now, back to Dropping In.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We're sitting with Dori Jones-Young, the author of a wonderful uh, and multi-tiered book when the Red Gates Opened. We've been sort of at the macro level, I would say, but I'd like to zoom in now to the personal level. The woman behind this book um, and this sweeping book, there is a woman here, Dory, who is, I think, you, you named it um, when you described your personal symbol as the yin and yang. You really are a Balance: A Study in Contrasts. You you grew up, and I think what would be a very, um, you know, sort of predictable environment, and yet you talk about in the book, which is something I thought was quite wonderful, losing yourself when you fly into an unknown place, um, losing yourself even because you were fluent in Mandarin and at times became so immersed that you kind of you you kind of forget yourself. I wondered about the loss of boundaries, the, you know, you were expected to grow up and have a country club life, marry into the Presbyterian church, Um, this idea of marrying into someone who was not, quote, from your father, of your own kind, this was the antithesis of any family expectations, and yet you found it liberating, you found it exhilarating. I wonder if you reflect on that now as you've written the memoir, how this expanded or even released the boundaries that you grew up under.
2: I love that those words liberating and exhilarating because that is the way I felt about marrying a Chinese man. Um, I was, uh, as you said, I grew up in Ohio in a In a very white-bred community, didn't, certainly had never met even a Chinese person. It never occurred to me to go to China or learn Chinese until I was, uh, until really after college. But I just really, I, initially I just love the language because the language is so deliciously difficult. So I, I started with the language and then thought, well, now that I've learned the language, I need to learn something about the country. But it was only in writing the memoir that I I looked back and said and asked those questions that you're you're alluding to, which is why would I, given where I came from, why would I be drawn to a place so different? And one of the things I didn't mention in my memoir is that when I was a kid, I really loved The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and at the back of The Lord of the Rings, there's this whole appendix with these Elvish and Dwarvish languages that Tolkien made up, because he was a linguist himself. And the idea of people who didn't look like me and who spoke a different language, but who had a, a fascinating, faraway culture, just really appealed to me. And uh, when I started learning the Chinese language, I just thought, I just really want to get to know that place. But you're right, once I decided I wanted to marry Paul, it was kind of hard to break it to my parents. That was the hardest part of the book. Well, one of the hard parts of the book to write is the discussion I had with my parents when I told them that Paul and I wanted to get married, and I was I was concerned about losing them. Um, they were from a very structured world where most people did what their parents expected them to do and um marrying a chinese man was just not part of that and plus he had he was 15 years older and he had been married and divorced and had two kids which is also not what they wanted for their little girl so it was uh it was it was kind of a painful part of the memoir to write when i i, I had to remember how, how it felt. Fortunately, I had, I did have a journal and I had written, uh, how it felt at the time. So I was able to go back and access that. But I do think that loss of boundaries and what I, I kept calling it, um, going into the unknown. And, um, I've always just loved to do that in my reading. I love to read books about unknown places and just go in, just going off the map. I love it when my GPS doesn't have any roads on it, you know. And then mm-hmm. so of course the GPS goes out after a while. But just to be in a in a in a place that I've never been before, that not many people have ever been before. It's been something that I've I've just loved. The rest of my family thinks I'm very strange, I have to admit. <laughs> but it it uh it's just something that, that appealed to me from early on and um uh, I probably wouldn't have been surprised uh, if you'd asked me that I, I would marry a Chinese man or marry a man that's very different from me. And uh, mm-hmm. so far, it's worked out really well. We're still married and uh, and getting along very well. And we find uh, things that are that we have in common. And mm-hmm. part of that is that he had lived in the U.S. and understood, spoke fluent English, understood and appreciated my culture and where I came from. And I spoke Mandarin and had traveled widely in China and really appreciated the Chinese culture, where he came from. He was actually born in China. He's an immigrant. So he very much identifies with China. And that that helps that we each had gone way over 50% of the way to really understanding and appreciating one another's culture.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a it's a beautiful uh, balance in the sense that you know I think about the yin yang symbol and the dots on on either side, and and the way in which you enrich one another. Um, clearly, it's a commitment that took a lot of patience, a lot of long term view and planning because. Um, I think in contrast to the American, you know, uh, fall in love overnight. Um, you know, it's in it's absolutely love at first sight, uh, we're engaged within six weeks. This was something that evolved over the course of two years for you and Paul. And I think about the word challenge, um, when it cause it came up in my mind time and time and again reading this really sensational memoir, is that, you know, you talk about Tolkien and learning the language and the glossary at the end. I mean, that's a challenge, right? It's you, okay, I'm going to learn mm. a language completely different than my own. <laughs> whereas, whereas in America sometimes, and I think in all countries, uh, we suffer from otherness and fear of otherness, where you kind of decided mm. to launch long- launch yourself into otherness. And you have a motto in the book where you say, we all enter the world while leaving the comfort of our own zone. I think this was so interesting. You created a home in China that really was of China. A lot of people stick in the expat community. They don't intermingle. They more or less Mm -hmm. transfer their home from their, you know, from their home base and put it install it in the in the in the country in which they're living so I think the fact that you Mm -hmm, were mm -hmm. unapologetically adventurous unapologetically ambitious um, you had a strong sense of dreams and you you followed your dreams Um, I, I think that there's something very intuitive about that have you developed new dreams now that you're you're in america you've you've written a memoir. How has it been to do that and and what is it like to be in this this medium of communicating your personal self?
2: Well, I appreciate your your description of that because that's that's the way that I did feel but I did not have any fear of others. I was actually attracted to people who were very different from me, and I think <clears throat> Today, when I, I, I read about Americans who fear immigrants in our country, I, I just don't even understand them, unfortunately. I wish I did, but I just, immigrants have enriched our country so much. And I, I just don't, I can't see why people wouldn't see it that way. We all, <clears throat> aside from the uh, indigenous people, the vast majority of Americans are descended from immigrants, sometimes not, sometimes relatively recently. And so I, I think it's important to, to, to see immigrants uh, with, with open eyes and, and to, to follow the dream of, of traveling overseas and really understanding them once, once overseas travel becomes
0: possible.
1: Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about breaking the molds from the old and forming new ones. Um, You weren't living in the past. You were forward-looking. Do you think that the business aspect of things and the pioneering sense that business naturally uh, incurs uh, influenced you in that way, to always be looking ahead?
2: Maybe it did, because a a business entrepreneur, my dad was a small-scale entrepreneur. He had a bookshop. Uh, has to be looking ahead and, and thinking of new possibilities. My daughter is an entrepreneur as well and breaking the mold. And I think that's one of the things that Americans are very good at, um, is imagining something that didn't exist before and creating it, either whether, whether in art or in business. And that is a strength that we have in the U.S.
1: You, you gazed at one point up at Notre Dame and said the stability, the strength, the stone of this place and what it's endured. There was a kind of trial by fire in your personal and professional life that you overcame. Do you have any parting words? We're, we're just about out of time. We've got about a minute left. Any parting words about this idea of being both flexible and strong?
2: Well, I... Um I think that it's, as I said, it's, in, it's really important for, um, for all of us in the U.S. To, to either travel overseas or talk to people from other countries and, and be able to, to see the world from, from their point of view. And that does take both flexibility and, and confidence in yourself. And I, I hope that, I think we as Americans can do that. But it, uh, it worries me that at some level we've forgotten how to do that. But I think we're, we're,
1: we, we can do it. We can do it. We just need the practice. You, overcome, you overcame a lot of self-doubt to become Dory Jones Young. We thank you very much for being with us. Your website is doryjonesyoung.com. You're on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Goodreads. So it's delightful having you. You talk about sleeping in the same bed but dreaming different dreams. I think this is just such an important message for us to retain that connectedness. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Ciolino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and keep dreaming different dreams. Till next week, thank you for dropping in.
0: Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.